And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Keith Law. Welcome to episode 56 of The Keith Law Show. My guest today will be James Fagan, our White Sox writer here at The Athletic, to talk about some interesting White Sox storylines from Carlos Rodon to the Yerminator to some of the really interesting young players on that White Sox roster. Uh, first, we'd just like to let readers know, if you are a subscriber to The Athletic, and you should be, I've had two pieces related to the Major League Baseball draft go up in the last five days. Last week, I did a a new ranking of the top 50 prospects in this year's draft class. And then on Monday morning, I had a post. I went down to UVA, Charlottesville, this weekend to see University of Louisville play the Cavaliers. And I have a post up on that including asking the question of why Louisville catcher Henry Davis, who was fourth on my ranking last week, why isn't he the best prospect in this year's draft class? Why wouldn't we take an elite hitting catcher who absolutely can be an average defender, if not better, and stay behind the plate? Why wouldn't we take that guy over very good college pitchers, given the industry's belief that position players are safer than pitchers? So I profile Davis and talk about that question, talk about some of the other players I saw this weekend while down in Charlottesville. would also like to remind everyone that my second book, The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves, is now out in paperback. You can buy it anywhere fine books are sold. If you would like an autographed copy, Midtown Scholar in Harrisburg, midtownscholar.com, does still have a handful of copies that I signed personally right when the book came out. You can order those directly from their website. Now it is my pleasure to be joined by my colleague, James Fagan. He covers the White Sox for us here at The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter at J-R-F-E-G-A-N. He is speaking to me fresh off of a tight Patriots Day game, a well-played Patriots Day game. James, how would you describe the Sox versus Sox tilt from Patriots Day? Someone was tight. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Basically, I thought post-game... You know, the mystery that we'd be trying to solve would that, you know, this is kind of the first time since 2018 that anyone has really seemed uh, that level of on time with Lucas Giulio's changeup. Uh, you know, you watch, I think the first game of the, the first changeup he threw of the game was his 0 2 changeup to Enrique Hernandez. And yeah, you look at the location, it was a mistake and it got hammered, and that's what's supposed to happen. But Lucas Giulio has been throwing changeup in mistake locations. Uh, for a while now and getting really confused swings on it. And other than maybe one oh one change up to JD Martinez, it looked like they knew it was coming every single time. And, you know, post game people really didn't have a lot of answers for it. Um, Lucas just said it was the worst he had executed them all, all year uh, and kind of blamed it for that. And, um, you know, maybe that could be so if he's saying that and maybe we'll learn a lot more about what was wrong when he kind of figures it out and fixes it the next time out. That's kind of, we knew a lot more about what was wrong in the 2018 season and 2019 when he had kind of fixed everything. And, uh, you know, one of the, one of the reasons that the, this outlet kind of does good work is that we do kind of uh, wait to see how things play out a little bit and not just 
rush for immediate 20 minute reaction, but it was, it was really strange. And I, I thought it'd be a lot more, uh, you know, trying to figure out what was at the heart of it. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm kvetching about it my colleagues at this point. It, it, it didn't seem like we were trying to get to the root of a mystery, but, um, yeah, that, that, that's a team built around a lot around the idea that this guy is going to be an absolute frontline starter. They don't have this, you know, endless weapon of like Legion of Arms where everyone can kind of give 140 good innings and they'll be fine. Um, so, so any kind of uh, crack in the armor for for Giolito or any sort of uh, inconsistency for him uh, puts the White Sox in a bad way. So, uh, having him correct that immediately, uh, especially given that literally his last time out, he threw seven scoreless innings. Um, is a, a big imperative for them. Yeah, I just from seeing some of the I, I call them highlights on Twitter. I wondered if was were like they picking it up. Like I always hate the well, he was tipping his pitches because anytime I hear that from a coach uh, as an explanation for a guy having a bad outing, it just immediately my sensors go up. But either one, it's just an excuse. Right or two, there's something else going on, and you just don't want to tell us. It's the easiest thing to say. Oh, we we saw something. We saw he was tipping his pitches. We're not going to tell you what it was, but we saw it, and you just have to trust us in this. Now I know they didn't say that today, but I actually right. thought, you know, maybe I'm like I've been in the industry too long, and now I'm starting to think that way. They've co-opted me, and I'm falling for this. But it was like, wait, the changeups, the like nobody sees his changeup. You know, Mike Trout right. two weeks ago was telling him it was the one of the best pitches he'd ever seen. And then today, it seemed like Boston was just on it, on it, on it. And I don't, I don't know. I'm, I, I don't even necessarily. This isn't even necessarily a question. It was just sort of watching. It, it was like, wow, they really. You just said it, right? You just said it. it seemed like they knew what was coming, and it, it kind of looked like that. Yeah, I mean, if if anything, he's added some action to it this season. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's getting more arm side run on it, and I almost asked him like a couple times at the first couple of games, like, do you want that? I mean, it's almost like almost the beauty of it was that it was just you know, straight floating in and tunneled everything off, off, off your heater as much as possible. But yeah, it's it's something that's gotten by purely off deception for so long. I, I remember like his first good start in 2019 in Kansas City, Alex Gordon even said post-game, was like, you know, it's not that good, but I couldn't see a guy. I didn't know it was coming. Like, it's just like <laughs> this, he, it was just, he had really good deception on it. Um, so it, yeah, it was very strange. It was a very aberrant, uh, to have that level of just everybody picking it up and, and sitting on it and timing it right. Um, you know, when he gives the home runs off his changeup, you know, in the past, the last couple of years, it's just been like, well, they must've guessed because nobody picks it up. And yeah, you know, most hitters are guest hitters, uh, at this point and that's going to happen, but you didn't see it with the consistency you saw today. So it was a really weird game <laughs> and, uh, it's, you know, other I, I I wind up following what interests me uh, in this job a lot, and that may not be what's always trending in the news cycle, but this is a game that's like, that was strange. Mm-hmm. I want to figure out what was happening there. And, uh, you know, may- maybe in five days he will uh, just annihilate the Texas Rangers, <laughs> which, one, might not prove anything, but two... Uh, <laughs> Could 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 provide a lot of answers for what was going on there. Actually, will he line up against Dane Dunning? Dunning pitched yesterday. I think Cease is lined up against Dunning. Okay, I was going to say that would be very interesting. I doubt – I mean, it's early. I'm not reading into anything into this. I'm sure White Sox fans are seeing Dunning pitching pretty well. And didn't Lynn just hit the injured list? And it's like, well, right. yeah, everything's going wrong, right? Like, the sky is falling in the south side of Chicago, obviously. Uh, when I so when I first reached out to you to ask you to do the podcast, it was in the wake of Carlos Rodon throwing a no hitter. Obviously, a much 
happier moment for White Sox fans. And I just find, and you wrote about that for us uh, right after the game, and I just find his whole arc fascinating because there was a point maybe two years ago where it was, is this guy ever going to be healthy and effective enough to be a big league starter? So he went from his sophomore year in college, the best prospect in the country in the draft, didn't have a great junior year and then just sort of like gradually down, 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 shoulder surgery, Tommy John surgery, comes back, not throwing as hard, not throwing as well. And now this year, this is the guy, he was his first two years at North Carolina State. He's completely rejuvenated. So kind of give us a sense of what you've seen and, and learned from talking to people there about Rodon turning back into the guy he was always predestined to become. I will say like it was, um, it was hard. It was easy to miss because one, he was very ineffective. And two, I think his second start uh, last year, uh, he left with an injury where, like, it was shoulder stiffness and his velo just started falling off a cliff. Uh, and that was kind of clued you wrong. I think he was throwing 86 by yes. the second inning. But the velo was back post-Tommy John surgery mm-hmm. to some degree. He was throwing, like, 95 in their intra-squad games. I think that Cleveland uh, relief appearance where he absolutely got lit up and I thought he was talking to us on Zoom that, that this was the last time I was ever going to see Carlos Rodon because um, he had just been thrown in this awful situation. They clearly thought him as a reliever and you know it just went horribly. And like, what do you use him as now? Because you always thought like, if everything goes wrong, Carlos Rodon, you can throw him in the bullpen. And, you know, it didn't seem like that was a good path either. <laughs> he hit like 99 in that game. So the fact that the velo was back... Um, wasn't the hugest surprise. Mm. Uh, but even when he came back uh, in 2020 with the velocity, it was still like the same, you know, poorly commanded, not exceptional ride fastball that, you know, he would get hammered if he didn't locate it right, which he frequently did not. Um, and, you know, it, it was still basically everything is just trapping to set up the slider, yeah. uh, which has been Carlos Rodon's, you know, professional career. Everything this offseason was about um, doing a lot of the things that, you know, not change up his arm swing so much, but doing a lot of things that Lucas Giolito kind of had to, um, you know, get the life and action and response on his four-seamer that uh, he did. It was a lot of core velocity belt training. It was, uh, you know, uh, weighted ball uh, you know, work with with Ethan Katz. And it was a lot of these things that, to try to – them touting that he's going to get carry back on his fastball and he's going to be able to use it as a weapon again. And throughout spring training, if spring training means anything, which you usually know, uh, you saw it. Um, you see a lot of things in spring training don't mean anything, but you saw him throwing his four-seamer by people. You saw him kind of leading with that, with that being a pitch that he could use to not just kind of tokenly get ahead, but finish people off with. And that, you know, teams had to plan a game around a game around that, that he could throw his changeup off of it. And it wasn't like... I. I, I remember asking him in early 2019 when he's having a modicum of success when he's throwing that slider 45, 50 times a game. And I was just like, maybe you could just be Patrick Corbin and just right. do that. <laughs> and he was, he was like taken aback by that. Like that did not like um, seem like an approach he thought he could really lean into. He's just like, this is a temporary thing. I didn't have my best fastball today. That's why I threw the slider a ton. But, you know, my fastball is coming back. Don't worry about it. A month later, he's under the knife. Um, so now... He, he's pitching the way that he kind of foresaw, you know, back then. You know, obviously, a ton of stuff has happened. Um, uh, you know, a ton of adjustments have been made. But the end of that no-hitter, he didn't have his best slider that entire game. Uh, his slider was a lot better against Seattle in his <laughs> first start. 
it wasn't, you know, the command of a slider, you know, sure enough, cost in the perfect game because he, you know, bounced it. Right, backfooted. Literally, yep. literally backfooted Carlos Perez. <laughs> it was all about the fact that he just, when he got into a bad count, when the chips were down, he could throw his four-seamer by people, which is something you really haven't seen his professional career. Um, and that was not just about having the velocity again, though I think the pitch he threw in the ninth inning, I think I wrote it, 98.8, was literally the fastest pitch he had thrown in, in four years. Yeah. It was about the action on it. And it's two games. He looked good in spring. It's whatever. Uh, you know, the first 180 inning season he throws will be his first. But it's a different looking guy. And, you know, this is literally his first nine inning uh, complete game. Uh, I'm not saying he's an ace now. I'm not saying he's, uh, you know, Lance Lynn, take your time because you have a new number three starter. But... <laughs> It's something to look at. It's 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 different from what you've seen. You gotta you know give some respect to it. And and I I don't think it's just because he threw a no hitter. I think it's because he looks better. It's interesting to me because I had my history with Rodon goes. It's really before he got to the big leagues. Like I said, the first time I saw him was the summer before his draft year. So he was pitching for Team USA, and it was the best amateur slider I'd ever seen. It might still be the best amateur slider I've ever seen. But what you were just talking about, about his fastball prior to the changes he appears to have made, was even true back then. He'd throw hard. I have a pretty good memory of him throwing 97 pretty regularly. I don't know that he got harder than that. But it was like not a great fastball. It's weird to discuss that. as well, it's, it, was, it was 97, but you know, it's not that great. right? But as, as it turns out, especially with the evolution of velocity in general in the big leagues, you can throw 97 and have it be not a terribly effective pitch if it doesn't have span or movement or life or, or or in his case, I don't think it had much deception because of the way his delivery worked. So it was this guy's getting got an elite slider and a, at the time had a really good track record as an amateur starter. I don't know that anybody, and I'm, including myself, really thought, well, is that enough? Right? Is that slider by itself enough to say this guy's a potential number one or number two starter? So at the package that he offers today as you've described it now I, I know you don't want to say he's clearly you know based on two starts in spring training that this is what he is but if i were regrading him as a prospect today based on what you described i'd probably say i'd probably like him more because it's now it's not just the slider and if he doesn't want to throw the slider doesn't think he should throw the slider 40 to 50 times a game like you just said well now he's got something else he can work with and the slider is there when he needs it but it doesn't have to be his primary pitch, a la Patrick Corbin. Right. And, you know, obviously part of saying a guy's number one or number two is consistency, mm-hmm. you know, track record and durability. Durability, and for sure. Those are all things that, you know, are unchecked uh, uh, for him at this point. Yeah, that's – and we don't know, right? We, I, I obsess about this a little bit is, hey, this player's qualified for the ERA title once in his career – why do we think he's going to be able to do it this year or, you know, twice in the next three years or in the case when someone hands out a long-term contract to a player? This guy, if you don't have a track record of health, why should we assume you'll have a track record of health? And I mean, that was the, you know, I think that's come up with a lot of these, you know, part of the problem that the White Sox are having with lack of depth right now is that they were maybe a little bit banking on guys who don't have great, who don't have track records of both health and effectiveness. They have guys who have track records of one or the other, but not many guys on this roster, I'm thinking even more of the pitching staff, who could offer you both. Right, and that could extend to, you know, Eloy Menez. I think when he got hurt, I, I just, like, 
opened a Google Doc and I started typing all these anecdotes of like times he got hurt or missed a couple of games that I could remember offhand. I had it was up to eight. Oh god! By the time I like got to it, but but yeah, um, I I don't do what you do uh, for a living, but you know something that was always described about him uh, to me was that the you know, delivery was stiff and mm-hmm. that he kind of didn't you know finish in a smooth way. I agree. I, I felt like you could see it. You, I felt like you could feel a really stiff like cut off that his legs would get to a certain point and not drive through the way you want it. That was another thing that they said that they worked on a lot in the offseason, that it was all about, um, you know, feeling that he could he was putting more stress on his legs and not on his shoulder. And that was what the optimism that, you know, along with, you know, trimming a little bit of weight and, and feeling like he was better conditioned, that that was something that was going to bode well to him staying healthy, not just, you know, selling out and getting more velo and having more life, but, you know, it still could wear down or, you know, everything's going to. Um, you know, pop after 60 innings or something like that. That, that was part of their optimism. Mm-hmm. Again, I feel like everybody says I'm getting to my legs more in my delivery uh, <laughs> in spring training. Um, yep. It, it, it's There's so much road to go. There's so much more he has to prove, but I, I, I think it merits watching. Yeah, it's the, the proof will be in the, the proof is in the pitching, right? Like if he continues to at least pitch, hold his stuff, be durable, he's not going to doesn't have to pitch at this level but yeah if he thinks he's using his legs more and there are probably things we can look at you know, that's why i like to go watch pitchers from the side too to see where they land and where is the arm where, you know where is their hand position when the front leg strikes there are little things you can look at but ultimately the proof is does he hold up if he holds up then that would at least support the contention that he's using his legs more and and I agree with what, what you described. I, I remember the scout who pointed, first pointed this out to me. We were walking out of that same Rodon outing when he was in college and talking about how great the slider was. He said, I've never seen a pitcher who was at that level who, land, who landed that stiffly. He thought it was like he's never going to hold up. And I was like, I, I'm not a good enough scout to tell you that. But it always stuck in my mind. That scout had, had a pretty good track record. Um, but he like he absolutely thought, you know, that's going to have to change at some point. And it, I would say if he continues to hold up, it's at least an indicator that they've made that change. That's assuming that the delivery was part of why he got hurt in the first place. Well, if he manages to stay healthy and especially hold this kind of velocity, then it means it's actually worked. I think it would be another feather in Katz's cap too. I mean, they're just, they, I think they're doing some really good, interesting things with pitchers, which is not something you've been able to say about the White Sox for a while now. Yeah, uh, you know, Katz was very adamant that, you know, Radon was spinning on his toe too much, mm-hmm. that he was, you know, putting everything on a, his quadricep. And, you know, I don't know if the fixes he's going to put in uh, are going to be, you know, address all of them. But the fact that they're aware and there's there's something that they're actively trying to combat uh, is progress. I, I feel like maybe, you know, obviously Don Cooper had a very outstanding career, uh, you know, he you don't last too long without being good right. at, 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 during your peak. And I'm, I'm sure 15 years from now, um, if Ethan Katz is still talking about core velocity belts, people are going to be looking at him like, what are you, yeah, right. dinosaur, <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, well, peak about? Don so, Cooper was one of the best, right? It was a joke. Right. Just send a guy to the White Sox. Don Cooper will give him a cutter and he'll a Cy Young Award. Yeah, I, I'm sure if just from what he did in the mid-2000s, yeah. if I just sorted by, you know, pitcher F4 and uh, what – his entire tenure where the White Sox rank, I think they were still in the top 10. Mm-hmm. Obviously, a lot of that was a while ago, but, you know, pitching coaches seem to have their primes just like uh, pitchers, and, and and maybe they're getting shorter uh, just like pitchers' yeah. primes are. Yeah, like all of us, I would guess. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Um, so we got to talk about the Erminator. Um, I held off as long as I could, but he pitched today. He's just adding to his legend. Also, you wrote a really good piece on him uh, that I think was actually published Monday morning. Um, you know, Mercedes kind of kicked around for a while. People, a bunch of people asked me, like, why wasn't this guy ever a prospect? My biggest answer for him, for them was well, he was kind of old for everywhere he played. And look at it, right? That's generally not what the best prospects look like. Uh, you know, what did you learn? What did you, what do you see from him? Obviously he's not going to hit 400 the rest of the season. I'm not crazy, but do you see a role for this guy? Do you think he could be, you know, is there a way to expand him as his offensive performance comes back down to earth? Are there ways that they could deploy him where he could still be helpful? I don't really know. Like, um, <laughs> it's a good answer. It's like the reason he'd get dinged as a prospect is what he's old, uh, and he has no defensive position yeah, right now. Right. He's excelling the majors. He's an old rookie and he has no defensive position. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm sure you have heard your share. I know I've heard my share of defensive criticisms of Zach Collins. And that's clearly the guy they trust more than Yermi Mercedes behind the plate. Yeah. Like Zach Collins is the backup catcher on that team. Your right. <laughs> Mercedes has not caught a game yet. Yeah. They've said that they're comfortable with him, but. You know, the, the proof is in the fact that you, like, have refused to put him back there in any way. And he's a guy who, at this point, you're bat- as bad as getting him into the lineup, uh, you know, the hardest way you can through DH. And, uh, you know, they, they've, he's played left field. He's played third base in the minors. He's played mm-hmm. first base. He's played all over. None of these are places for a guy who's red hot as they come that they're not they're willing to play uh, at this point. And this is a team that's got... You know, has given multiple starts to uh, Billy Hamilton. This is a team that's I played Jake <laughs> Lamb in left field the other day. This team that has Andrew Vaughn playing in left field. This is not a team that's like unimaginative about where they can slide guys in to get a good bat or a bat that they think is going to be good into the lineup. Yep. So the fact that they're still hesitant about your mean, you know, says a lot. Yeah. And he's definitely willing. He's probably not as quite as slow as you think he is exactly off looking at him and. He definitely has a powerful arm, but uh, yeah, there seems to be a lot of hesitance about how much they trust him. Um, you know, he, he definitely has a big throwing arm behind the plate, but it, it didn't seem like the best, as much work as they've done. It didn't seem like the best blocker uh, in spring training or anything like that. Uh, definitely saw some pass balls that seemed like, you know, bad technique or, you know, getting crossed up and, you know, stuff that big league catchers just don't do uh, uh, more than once in a blue moon at, uh, at this level. I don't know. I, I, I think it's very... Um, Depending on the bat, and if you get someone to kind of defend your mean, you know, it's usually this saying, hey, he could always hit. And right now, he does look like he could hit. He's, he's not going to hit 400, 
But uh, I, I, I'm a fan, or at least fascinated by the two strike approach. I, I, you don't really see guys go from like a, almost Daniel Palka, the biggest leg kick I've ever seen, <laughs> biggest hand load I've ever seen, uh, to a, a no stride two strike swing that really keeps them in counts. You're, you're seeing a bit more vulnerability as people are working him inside. Uh, you're seeing a bit more. Um, People pairing that with, uh, you know, I want to say horizontal breaking cutters that, uh, you know, Yavali threw him at today really gave him a lot of problems. I definitely don't think he can maintain a, I, I would be surprised even by a sub 20 strikeout percentage um, over the course of a full season. Mm-hmm. But he's got some things that he does to try to keep himself alive that are really interesting that I, I think, I don't know if it's going to make him, he can make a living as a DH and he's going to just be, you know, Nelson Cruz the rest of his life, but Given that the production was there in the minors, given what he's done early on, um, it seems like he's going to hit at a major league level or you know around like an average level. I just don't know if that's a guy you just salt away the DH spot to indefinitely and just say like, well, as long as we're batting, you're mean every day, we're great, uh, and has a career because it doesn't look like there's a defensive home outside of that. So it, there's, I, I think it's what you would say about any prospects. It's what you'd say about Andrew Vaughn, uh, you know, coming up. It's like. That dude's going to have to hit, and he's going to have to keep hitting because I don't know what he does if he's not hitting. He's not providing you a ton of value. wanted to ask you about two, actually two rookies on the roster this year. One was Vaughn, uh, just early impressions. I don't know if you'd gotten a chance to see him much at all prior to this spring. Uh, last time I saw him was just over two years ago uh, when he and Adley Rutschman had a series where they faced each other. And, um, and I mean, what am I going to say, right? They were both great prospects. It was pretty obvious. I walked away saying, yep, those are probably two best college guys in the draft. Okay, that's kind of what they're supposed to look like as hitters. But then you know, the part I find so interesting about Vaughn is they they sign him. He finishes that summer in high A, which is actually good, but was very aggressive. And he was just fine there. Right. And I was fairly sure. It's like, all right, they'll probably slow it down now once games resume to let him get his feet under him and wait to see if some more power develops, if they have to make adjustments. Instead, it's, nope, we got a need. Boom. He's right in the big leagues. So we've seen the defense hasn't been great in left field so far, but really what have you seen from him more at the plate uh, in terms of approach or what kind of power do you think we might see from him? What kind of production, I should say, in general, do you think we'll see from him the rest of the year? I don't know. He looks overmatched right now, and I know that's that's fine given where his track record, given that he hasn't had a full minor league season at any point. Um, I've never, I saw him in Winston-Salem too, when he was he fine, okay. you know, yeah. um, it looked like the approach was really solid. It looked like he didn't, you know, expand the zone, but I didn't see him get super hot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I saw all the ingredients of a really solid hitter, but I didn't see like a guy like, all right, he's dominating. Mm-hmm. He's too, he's overqualified. Get him out of here. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't do prospect stuff for a living, but I've, <laughs> I've seen Eloy Jimenez hit at high A, and I know what that looked like, and it wasn't at that level. Right. Um, I see, like, you've seen, I mean, he's drawing a lot of walks because he's really, you know, he's not overly aggressive. He's really spitting on a lot of close pitches. Uh, he has a really good idea uh, doing it to play. All the things that people said when they were justifying the idea of giving this assignment to him would carry him through the day, that he had this solid plate approach he wouldn't break from. I see a lot of him getting his pitch to hit and following it off. Yep. I see a lot of something that was touted to me was that what made him different from a hitter is that he's so calm that he trusts in his approach that he has a, you know, he, he doesn't, um, you know, miss mistakes. He doesn't waste pitches. He doesn't get too revved up and follow pitches back. 
uh, when it's his time to jump on him. I feel like I've seen a lot of that. I feel like I've seen a lot of pitches in the zone where he's worked it kind of his favor, where he's forced him to throw a you know a cutter or a fastball in on his hand, something to challenge him. And I, I've seen him either swing through it or follow it back. And I know that's not what he's supposed to do long term. I know this is an extremely early approach. I know he's not getting to play every day, which um, you know seems a little counterintuitive if you're giving your best hitting prospect this opportunity in the majors. You think if you think that the the best outcome at the end of September is going to be Andrew Vaughn acclimated the majors being productive. Don't you need to race to that opportunity by giving as many opportunities as possible? He hasn't been getting that. It's a lot of earn your at bats uh, talk uh, while you know Jake Lamb or Billy Hamilton plays instead. And yeah, <laughs> <laughs> listeners did not see the face I was making it. At I, I could watch Billy Hamilton run all day. I don't think we really need to see him with a bat in his hand. Um, I think my observation I said about Hamilton is that his numbers always they wind up over underwhelming me because I think Billy Hamilton I know he's not a hitter and then he gets like a hit or two in a game I'm like oh my god Whoa, he's, yes right. he's doing it and then I look back at his numbers like oh right he's hitting 250 with not many walks right. and no power that's not great um yeah I, I, so what do I think when I'm seeing a guy foul pitches off that I think everything you hear him about he should be able to hammer it. Um, I, I would assume that with time, uh, with acclimation, uh, you know, those should turn into doubles. You know, there should be more home runs. You saw him, I think, short arm a really, you know, tough fastball up and in from uh, Urihara in spring training that made you think, like, this guy's got the hand speed and the, the power to really do this and, and succeed. But uh, that hasn't happened in the majors just yet with the inconsistency and whatnot. I assume it happens at some point. I've read too many great things about him from scouts who are way better than me to say, like, oh, turns out actually this guy can't hit because uh, I saw him struggle in 10 major league games. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I, they either they've got to kind of pick a direction of this. Either, you know, he is going to go back to AAA after a rough April and, and, you know, maybe find his footing and really get in a rhythm and maybe come back midseason, or you've got to just kind of bear through it right now. Uh, in the majors, let it happen. And I don't know how much of it is with Eloy Menes out. You're kind of searching for offense wherever you can get it a little bit. And the offense, I think overall, they're fine. And um, certainly seen some promising progress from Luis Robert. But they're not at this juggernaut level where you can just have uh, you know a level of a, a slot in the lineup that's just struggling every day for a month, and you kind of don't sweat it because I, I think right now they're really looking for some sort of rhythm wherever they can find it with. Jose Abreu not hitting well, with Yon Makata not hitting well, with, you know, really not a lot of uncertainty of how you're going to replace the Menace's production. Um, Vaughn not hitting the ground running is not giving the opportunity. And your Mercedes is hitting the ground running. Yep. Didn't think he was going to make the team. But now he's, you know, irreplaceable. <laughs> yep. uh, has, has thrown the whole picture into a lot more flux than I think we anticipated. So the last guy I wanted to ask about real quick was Garrett Crochet, who White Sox fans... A lot of White Sox fans didn't understand why he wasn't on my top 100, and my argument was basically, I think he's a reliever, and he's been really good in that role, but it's been a little different than I expected, at least, where he's been throwing a lot of fastballs, but he's missing more bats with the slider, and there's really not a third pitch to speak of there. Um, Do you think this is, I'm really most interested, you can tell me what you've seen from him, but also, is this kind of what he'll be this year? Do you get the sense that it's like, nuts one inning? Yeah, or maybe even moving into more high leverage spots, but he's missing bats in this role. We might as well leave him here, especially because he's he's had some health issues in the past when he was still in college that might limit him innings wise in the short term. 
Well, if I had to hit upon the biggest... Jeez, there's so many sources of White Sox fan angst. That, yeah, well, true. Maybe Gary, maybe Crochet isn't even top 10. <laughs> but uh, he's sitting like 96, 97 yeah. this year. Uh, and he was 100, 101 coming out of the bullpen. Just, uh, you know, he, he, <laughs> there wasn't a lot going on, but blowing people's doors off. Yep. But he was as good as a guy at blowing people's doors off last year. This year, uh, you know, it's been kind of weird because he, he's obviously not going to get the same, you know, just absolute helpless swings on the fastball at that velocity um you know yeah the slider in some of his early appearances was really uh really solid Mm -hmm. um it's been a little consistent at times in spring training uh you know cats was saying that they were really struggling with him throwing it as a curveball it lost a lot of velo went down to low 80s and was getting more loopy they felt like they were um progressing towards sharpening it and getting back to that slider action and you know with it more high 80s action but Mm -hmm. you've seen it be a little inconsistent uh, he got a swing and miss off the changeup the other day, but it was a 92 mile an hour changeup when he's sitting 96, 97 with the fastball. So, yeah, you kind of it's it's def, it's obviously not a finished product by any means. It's not where the point where I'd start saying like, hey, you know, put some respect on Garrett Crochet's changeup name. It, it, it's obviously something he's willing to throw and they're trying to work on. But uh, it, it's with the weirdness of the velo, which they've always said like, you know, we expect it to tick up over the course of the season. You know, we're not worried about it. And the fact that this changeup is still very hard, um, it's kind of a weird package to look at. Um, you know, they they defended it the basically saying that he's not getting you know hard hit or anything like that, and that's true. Yeah. But this is a day and an age where if you're not missing bats, if you're not striking out guys at almost thirty percent clip, uh, you better have you know you know a dynamite sinker getting insane ground ball rates, doing something with your contact profile that's very unique. You know, be Aaron Bummer or. Uh, you know, something's kind of up and right now it's been kind of a little consistent. I don't think with the fact that the velo's down with the fact that you are not seeing, you know, the Michael Kopech level consistency, uh, at this point, Michael Kopech level consistency. It's weird. That's I know. Crazy. Right. But look at him. <laughs> but, looks but look great. Him. They already seemed hesitant or not inclined to really stretch him out. I think Tony Russo, you know, said at the beginning of spring, like this is, this is part of a late inning mixture. This is not a guy that we're going to graduate towards starting this season. Um, he basically just has so few innings under his belt that they couldn't imagine ramping him up anyway. Like really, a sixty to seventy inning reliever season is such a big jump to what he did, you know, his college career. That you know, even that's something that has to be carefully managed. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's going to be one to two inning bursts over the course of the season, and it's really about does the life on all of his stuff, does the consistency of the shape of his stuff hold up under that, mm-hmm. uh, and that's really before you start thinking about him being starter next year which is something they've you know talked about some ambitions for but you know the, the question i was asking is if this guy's really a standout reliever or the course of the season and he's really good at this role how do you just walk away from that from what are still kind of shaky odds that he really sticks as a rotation you're going to take away one of your best relievers the best left-handed reliever and you know basically probably would still need some minor league seasoning or be have a really rough season in the majors starting next year? Are you going to walk away from a, uh, a bullpen piece while you're contending to do that? That seems really unlikely. Yep. They said, let us get to that point. And, you know, if he's a successful reliever, that's a, you know, that's a good, that's a good problem. That's the way, uh, Rakan put it. It's going to be quite a journey to get there, uh, in the first place to, to see what he looks like in this season. So 
starting him, it's 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 hard to it's hard to look that far at this point. Yep. Yeah, I agree. He's not like where Chris Sale was after Sale spent some time in the bullpen, moved to the rotation. Sales stuff was better, and I think Sales command and control were a lot better at the same uh, at that the analogous point in their development. Right, and you have to allow for the fact that maybe Chris Sale is a little bit more unique. Yes. <laughs> In so many ways. Yes, he is. You know, you, that's probably a lesson that was taught when you drafted college pitchers and sent them right to the majors really quick with Carl Sudan and Carson Fulman in the years after sales. That Maybe that process was not as repeatable as, you know, yeah. <laughs> once hoped. Yep, absolutely. My guest today has been James Fagan. He is our White Sox reporter. You can find his stuff on The Athletic. Like As I said earlier, he has great pieces up just in the last week on Carlos Rodon and on the Yerminator, Yerman Mercedes. You can and should follow James on Twitter at J-R-F-E-G-A-N. James, thank you so much for joining me. Happy to be here. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with a friend. And if you happen to listen on iTunes, please go and give us a review and a rating. Prefer five stars, but if it's not five stars, let me know why, and I'll try to fix it. No promises. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe, everybody, and go get that vaccine. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.